The role of a modern chief people officer is incredibly complex. There are so many different pressure sets being applied uh, through the business, through the team, through external conditions. And this can be ratcheted up even more when you are in a B2C environment. What happens when your customers are also candidates? You really need to be mindful of candidate experience and your recruiting process and how you're interacting with them in order to make sure that you are retaining them as customers. And I'm really excited today to spend some time with the Chief People and Culture Officer for Stitch Fix, Jevin Sue. Jevin and I are gonna dig into his background across a range of companies, but really hone in on that B2C aspect of building people teams and programs in a environment where it is a very consumer-facing organization. So we'll be right back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. 21st Century HR is a podcast exploring how to build better businesses through modern people practices and approaches. It's brought to you by my firm, Amplify. Amplify provides HR executive search and strategic consulting services that help companies build better organizations. From employer brand development and execution to global talent strategies, Amplify develops custom solutions that help clients from Hootsuite to SpaceX optimize their recruiting capabilities. Amplify also hosts a new community for HR leaders called the Ecosystem. The ecosystem was designed to bring modern HR leaders around the world together to share ideas, inspiration, and support. Learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Hey everyone, welcome to 21st Century HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and I am thrilled to be joined today by the Chief People and Culture Officer for Stitch Fix, Jevin Sue. Jevin and I are going to dig into his background and career path and uh, really explore a lot of the programs that he has been driving at Stitch Fix. Uh, and so let's dig right in. Jevin, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, just give the listeners a brief introduction and background on you. Sure. Um, thank you so much for having me, Lars. Uh, my name is Jevin Sue. I am the Chief People Culture and Officer at Stitch Fix. Uh, and lead everything related to our employees worldwide. So bring, bringing in great talent and helping them thrive and grow while they're here. Um, before Stitch Fix, I spent the last five or six years or so in high growth companies, including Square, Blue Bottle, Coffee, and Minted in uh, both kind of people focus as well as business roles and started my career at McKinsey & Company for about a decade, again, as a management consultant, as well as people focus roles there. Yeah, so th there's a lot to dig into, I think, in that path. But I want to I want to kind of rewind all the way back to the beginning. You know, when you started at McKinsey, uh, your initial role there was as a business analyst. So what uh, what kind of drew you to that field? And then, you know, the, your second role within McKinsey was transitioning into a recruiting operations role. So walk me through kind of what drew you to that first position and then what kind of triggered the uh, the evolution. Yeah. So one of the many jokes that people make about management consultants is that we don't really you know, know what we want to do with our lives. So we just go and do a bunch of consulting projects. <laughs> and that honestly was true. I uh, you know, was kind of graduating college and said, uh, I want to learn a lot and I, I haven't kind of picked a path. And so management consulting felt like a great way to just see a lot really quickly and learn a lot. And McKinsey's an, you know, an amazing firm. And so it felt like a great opportunity to do that. What I'd sort of thought would happen is I would do a bunch of projects and you know, essentially circle an industry or circle a function and say, oh, I, I got a project, I did a project on that and I'm so excited and I love this. Now I want to do that. And I found actually after two years, I had X'd a few things off the list, <laughs> but I actually hadn't really circled anything. And so uh, unfortunately, I hit 24, uh, just as much existential crisis as I was at 22. And, uh, and I got the great advice from a friend to just, you know, think about the things that you do for free and see if someone will pay you for them. 
And uh, and I went through all the things that someone in their mid twenties would do. I was like, oh, I love music. I love travel. I love food. Uh, but what I realized actually was I, there was this theme of thinking about people and what makes them tick and what makes them succeed and what makes them motivated that actually kind of shown up in all of these unexpected ways. I been a writing tutor in college. I had gotten involved with the Chinatown after school program at McKinsey. All of my kind of, you know, volunteer activities there were training related or recruiting related. Uh, if I hadn't gone to McKinsey, my backup plan was to become a teacher with Teach for America. And so it was just clear, actually, there's something there. And so I thought, you know, what the heck, um, let me try this. And so I moved actually over into what was just meant to be a third year rotation in McKinsey's recruiting team uh, to try it out. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting too, I think, especially kind of at that stage in your career, at that point in the industry, the the function of recruiting operations certainly wasn't what, is it, what it is today. I think most companies have recruiting op- operations kind of function and capability, and that's kind of a, a, a specific path within recruiting. And I think back in the day when you kind of moved into that, that, you know, that wasn't always the case. And I'm, I'm curious, kind of starting your recruiting career in recruiting ops as opposed to being a, a dedicated kind of full cycle recruiter. How did that shape how you think about recruiting? Yeah, it really, I think it was really foundational in shaping uh, how I think about recruiting and honestly broader talent. It's, you know, the very first role I took was essentially helping to drive a complete overhaul of McKinsey's recruiting rubric for consultants, how they did case interviews, how they did structured behavioral interviews. So anyone listening, if you did a case interview with McKinsey at that time, I apologize. Uh, I was responsible (laughs) for it. Uh, you know, and so, but if you think about it, the fundamental question is sort of what do you think great looks like for these roles that you think are so important? And how do you quickly ascertain what, you know, whether someone is great in like 45 minutes? Like, that's just a fundamentally fascinating question and not an easy one to solve. And so, and if you think about recruiting, you know, there are obviously so many sort of operational elements of it and the craft of being an amazing recruiter. But that those questions are what actually underlies that. And so I think being able to enter into the function with that lens of thinking about it analytically, thinking about it at a more systemic level, uh, really just, I think, set me up to, to take this perspective into the work um, going forward. Yeah, and so from McKinsey, you you moved on to Square, which I imagine, you know, at that time, Square was a, a smaller, kind of earlier stage startup, and you're coming out of McKinsey, which is none of those things, and kind of moving into a, a fast-paced kind of valley tech company. What was that transition like for you? Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a few months of kind of you know upside down land, opposite day. <laughs> uh, you know, it was, Square was a few hundred employees at the time. Which when I joined, you know, all the uh, really tenured people at Square were sort of like, I remember it was twenty employees. We're huge now, and obviously things you know have continued to grow since then. And um, you know, it was my first time working with a CEO founder led company. Uh, first time working in high growth tech, um, and so honestly, there were so many things that were new. Um, but I loved it. Um, it was hard, honestly, but I loved it. And I think, honestly, one of the biggest things that was hard and my advice that I give to people jumping into high growth tech for the first time is sort of trying to quickly understand what from your previous experience is almost plug and play applicable, what is 
applicable from a principles perspective, but actually needs to be adapted, and what is wildly in, in, you know irrelevant. <laughs> right. and, and I would say honestly, in my first six months at Square, I think I got all of them wrong at different times, right? Like I was sort of like, this feels plug and play. Then organ rejection, like definitely not. <laughs> uh, and then on another one, I'd sort of say like, well, this doesn't work at all. And all of a sudden, I was sort of like, wait, this totally applies. And at McKinsey, it was it was a strength of mine, and now I'm not using it at all. And so it was interesting. I th- one of the things I think looking back was just that learning curve and now seeing others go through it as well, which is why uh, I, I often give it as advice to people making that jump into high growth for the first time. Yeah. Well, so your, your career path at Square wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't linear for the field. You, you kind of started in recruiting and then you moved into a kind of sales ops leadership role. What, um, what inspired that? What, what made you kind of uh, shift gears while you were there? Yeah, I sometimes uh, characterize my career as being a wide-eyed wanderer. Um, and uh, I think a few things. So all of the best moves in my career have been essentially um, seeing a really interesting problem that I haven't experienced before and seeing amazing leaders that I'd get to work with in trying to figure out that problem. And so with sales ops, um, Francois Bruher, who is now uh, the CEO at Pinterest, um, had just come over from Google and was you know building out all these revenue functions at Square, and just um, I just thought the, the the problem was super interesting, right? So Square had been this long tail business that you know essentially you know your grandma working on her garage sale could pick up a a reader through the mail uh, and uh, have a really successful garage sale, but Square really wasn't oriented towards working with larger businesses, right? You need a sales team, you know, a, a business is not going to just make that decision based on a website and uh, and getting something in the mail. And so it was this really interesting business problem, and it was actually a business problem that was predicated on people, right? Yeah. So, and how do you sell? You know, sales can have its own subcultures that you know some people love, some people love less. And so there's this question of Square has an amazing culture. How do we bring sales into that? How do we build this uh, in a way that feels um, additive to our culture? So there are all these really interesting lenses, and Francois was really inspiring. And I sort of said, you know. Um, I'm just going to make this leap. And um, and I was really humble. I, I was actually, I moved back into an IC role. I uh, just said, I want to learn. And uh, and then actually, in many ways, learned um, so much about being a great people ops leader um, because I got, you know, into the business, super close to revenue, super close to customers, and actually developed, I think, empathy for both sides because all of a sudden I was the recipient of all of the things that the people team I'd just been on would send forth, right? In emails and directives and so on. And, you know, and I would totally have a moment here and there where I'd sort of say, like, ah, oh, this process is so hard. Like they don't understand. <laughs> and also it was like, oh wait, I was I was in that seat <laughs> three months ago. And so um, it taught me, I think, a lot of empathy now that I'm back in the people function of just what it feels like when you have all these other things, even when you really care, right? Even when you really care and you want to do the right thing, you have a ton of care for your people. There are all these other things that you're thinking about that are stressful, that are hard. Um, and so I think, it, you know, that pr- I think that time was really instructive for me in, in keeping me anchored and not forgetting that, you know, we're lucky on the people side of the house. That's all we think about. And it's, unfortunately, it's not 100 percent of the capacity that other leaders in the business can bring to it. And it's not because they don't care. And so just th- that's been something I've really taken from that time. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think uh, being in a position where you kind of sat on the other side of the house and were a customer of the people team, you know, you were you were supported by them. I think that gave you a perspective. And I think if you look at the modern, uh, the profile of a modern, you know, CPO or CHRO these days, a lot of them have worked in other areas of the business. And I think that there's a there's a certain kind of 
experiential quality to that uh, of really kind of being uh, being a recipient of people programs in addition to the person designing them that I think is really valuable because it just gives you a perspective that you can't have if you've spent all your time within the function. I think that's right. And I also think one of the exciting things to see in the function is with, I think, an influx of people coming with other functional experience as well as, um, you know, sort of working with people who have grown up in the function but are really disruptive and innovative and and excited to see things change. Um, you're seeing us actually bring in all these great insights and innovations from other business functions, right? And so when you think about operations and supply chain and um, agile product development and ev- frankly, everything that's happened in marketing over this last several decades, right, around um, brand affinity and authentic, you know, kind of authentic connection with consumers and CRM and uh, top of the funnel, you know, sort of uh, lead generation for sales, you know, versus recruiting. I mean, there's so many lessons to bring from other areas of the business, and so that's something that I find, you know, personally inspiring uh, as as a sort of side benefit of, of some of these things that you're seeing change in the profile. Yeah, and so okay, so after Square, you know, you spent uh, the last kind of portion of your career there in that sales op leadership role, and then you moved on to your first CPO role at Blue Bottle Coffee. So I'm curious, you know, hey, what did what did Blue Bottle kind of identify in you as somebody who at that time was kind of in a sales op roles? And then what was that transition like um, for you, kind of back into a people function, and not just in a people function, but leading and owning a people function? Yeah, I I think a couple things happened. So one of um one of the, the way I got introduced to Blue Bottle Coffee was uh, a mentor of mine, Steve Cadigan, who is the VP of HR at LinkedIn during their hypergrowth years. Um became a mentor of mine just uh through connections and then really um I think uh, kind of being aligned on sort of what we want to see in the world and uh and in our function. And um you know, and he as these things kind of happen in your career, what I realized was people like Steve um, can be really great um, at helping you find opportunities that you wouldn't have otherwise seen, right? And so uh, my understanding of the story is that when he he got to meet Blue Bottle and, and talk to them about what they needed in the leader, um, he suggested a few different people from his network that he thought could be a good fit. And uh, and I was kind of the wild card dark horse, because <laughs> to your point, so like, hey, you know, he's he's really interesting. He's got a lot of different experiences, but uh, maybe not, you know, sort of exactly what you look for as the most uh, sort of easily logical kind of candidate. But um, I think we had a great process where I got to know the the founder and I got to know the leadership and and what I really um, what really attracted me to Blue Bottle in the end I think made them resonate with me as well is just um, I really fell in love I think with the culture and the business and the commitment honestly um, and that's been a hallmark of every great company that I've been part of of whatever it is that they're trying to do in the world the people there are really intrinsically motivated and really want to see great things happen for their customers. Um, and Blue Bottle, for me, um, as you you know, you're sort of seeing in my journey, uh, I am a glutton for punishment. I keep kind of throwing myself into wildly uh, new contexts, which um, honestly, in the first six to twelve months, can be kind of brutal because you're just <laughs> relearning everything. And um, but I think if you get over that hump, um, it's just honestly super fun. It's where I get a ton of uh, motivation. And so for Blue Bottle. First time in a food business, first time in a brick and mortar business, most of your talent is distributed uh, in cafes. They don't, you know, most of your talent don't even share a schedule, right? And so there's right. no time where people are actually in the same place together. And so all of these things that were suddenly my go-tos at Square, you can't do, 
right? It doesn't work with the business model. It doesn't work with the organizational model. And so actually when I accepted the offer, I told them, I think this is going to be like HRX games. Like, like what, like I'm going to have to figure out all these new things that like, I definitely can't do in these other contexts. And I bet you I'll learn from that and I'll be able to bring them back. Uh, if I come kind of come back to some of these other contexts. And so, um, and so that's kind of where I went into it and I, and I loved it. Honestly, um, I tried to work as a barista, uh, once every four to six weeks, um, because it kept me grounded and connected to the fact that, you know, 80% of our team were in these roles on the floor with customers hourly, um, I was not a very good barista, <laughs> um, which is good for me, honestly, to remember how hard the job is and for um, the team in the cafes to see a leader struggling, honestly, and asking them for help. Uh, and the other piece that I thought was just awesome was every time I did it, you know, the first 30, 40 minutes, people are, uh, you know, I wouldn't say tiptoeing, but they're definitely, they're aware of the other person on the team who's not normally there, right? And then after right. time, you kind of just settle in and they start sharing things and making side comments. And uh, I, there was never a time that I worked a shift as a barista that I didn't leave with a fairly different perspective on something we were working on or something that we needed to accelerate. Yeah. Okay. So uh, important question. Uh, what's your go-to coffee now? Like what is your, uh, what is your jam? I'm super brand loyal. So I still get blue bottle delivered weekly and uh, I'm, I'm so lucky a cafe just opened at the foot of the Stitch Fix building. So it's just like, you know, my worlds keep colliding in a great way. <laughs> that, that was fate. I think that was uh, economic exactly. fate for the, uh, the location there. So, uh, so after blue bottle, you know, you spent uh, a bit of time in your next kind of head of people role, uh, running people at minted, and then you landed in your current role, um, at stitch fix. And so, um, I'm familiar with stitch fix. I'm a, a customer of stitch fix. So I, I know the platform, ah, thank well, you. but, uh, yeah, so I've, uh, you, you, helped me look, uh, slightly better than I'm able to do on my own. So I'm sure I'm significantly sure better. I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm underestimating. Uh, yeah, my, my wife would agree. But for uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with Stitch Fix, uh, if you could start, just kind of give an overview of of the business and the company and what you do there. Absolutely, Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service. We use a combination of algorithms and personal stylists to send our clients personalized boxes of apparel and accessories. Um, we really exist to help people discover the clothes that they love. Uh, that fit them, that fit their style, and help them really be inspired to look and feel their best and be their best. Um, we were founded in 2011 by our CEO, Katrina Lake, which, uh, fun fact, was my business school classmate. Uh, she and I uh, knew each other before Stitch Fix was a fully-fledged thing. Uh, and so I've had a sense for her as a leader, uh, and that's, I think, for the vision for the business for a very long time. And so it's just it's pretty amazing on a personal level to see sort of how far it's come, but also how far we think we can go. Today, we serve 3.2 million clients, uh, women, men, and kids in the U.S. and the U.K. Our headquarters is in San Francisco, but we have employees spread across the country, um, both remotely as well as in offices in Austin, Texas. Uh, and London. Um, we're well over 6,000 employees uh, worldwide. That includes 125 data scientists, uh, and we are competing for them in the, the heart of the most fierce kind of talent war for that type of talent and winning our yeah. fair share, I will say. Uh, we also have over 5,000 stylists. And so for me, I think um, what I really love about Stitchfix is that diversity of role, a diversity of talent. Um, you have people who are have such different contexts for their lives, for the geography, for their education. Um, but we are all united by our mission to inspire people to be their best selves, both our clients and our employees, um, and really doing that in a way that I think um, supports people to keep growing um, through trust and feedback. Okay. 
So you mentioned, you know, 6,000 uh, global employees across a, different, a couple different kind of categories of work. How is your team structured? How big is your kind of people team set up and how are you kind of structured to support that employee base? Yeah, my team is around 80 people now and growing. And uh, we're structured in a, a way that I think supports uh, the business across a few different dimensions. So um, we have a recruiting team that focuses on uh, bringing in great talent. One of the things that we do a little bit differently about recruiting at Stitch Fix is um, we really believe that the hiring manager um, is deeply uh, responsible and uh, empowered to actually own that process. And so um, in many ways, our recruiting team functions uh, as a coach. Um, to really work with that uh, hiring manager to source great talent uh, and to shape a candidate experience and and an assessment process um, that really allows that candidate to show their best and have their best shot at succeeding. Um, We have uh, an amazing learning and development team. That's some... some, we have an amazing learning and development team. That's a place where Stitch Fix is really invested early um, with a big belief structure um, from Katrina and our other leaders that we want to be a culture where people um, are growing through the work, through uh, feedback from their peers and from their manager, and through specific what I call interventions that really help give them a new perspective, let them practice something that um, feels hard or new, um, and lets them connect with people across the company. And so we have a number of programs focused on uh, our OS, uh, our operating system, uh, which is what we call our kind of cultural set of values, as well as um, how to give and receive great feedback. Um, we have a set of things around uh, how to be a great manager at Stitch Fix. And uh, we're honestly leaning into, I think, uh, this whole next chapter of learning that I think um, will really um, support people to, you know, kind of grow as rapidly as possible at Stitch Fix through not just some of these programs that I've already described, but I would say an ecosystem of learning, some of which is self-serve, some of which is peer-driven, uh, and other things that are kind of leader-led and uh, and people and culture team-led as well. And we have a total rewards team and a people operations team uh, focusing on making sure that we are paying people competitively and helping them in the whole kind of context of how they can be most supported, Stitch Fix, through other benefits and and perks and so on, um, um, thinking about that sort of whole arena, as well as kind of people operations. You know, So all of the machinery that I think in a great people team is sort of humming along invisibly behind the scenes, but actually is, is making for an incredible experience. Consumer grade is kind of what I call it. Uh, yeah. We have a business partner team that brings many of these things to life in terms of coaching managers, um, thinking about performance and talent management. Uh, we have a people science and analytics teams. Um, so uh, analytics is at the heart uh, and DNA of the company, um, given our kind of data science foundation. And so it's something that we're um, going after pretty aggressively on the people side of the house as well. Um, and we have an office operations team. Uh, who uh, make sure that our three corporate locations in Austin, San Francisco, and London are really delightful places where our OS comes to life and where people are really supported to be productive, connected, um, and just you know feel, I think, comfortable to do their best work. Yeah. And what does uh, ROS stand for? OS stands for operating system, which I, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just a total geek about this. Is such a great choice of nomenclature because if you think about it, um, you know, <laughs> cultural value is great. Don't get me wrong, but an OS is what runs your laptop. It's what runs yeah. your smartphone, right? Like everything else is architected on an OS. Everything else is an application that runs on an OS. And so the choice of those words here at Stitch Fix was really deliberate, right? So this idea that hey, 
culture stuff isn't the stuff on the side. It's not the stuff on a wall you get to pass on. It's what everything else runs on. And I'll be honest with you, when I was interviewing, I you know I saw it on a wall and I said, "That's great. There, those are great words. I've seen other great words on other walls as well." And uh, and I just saw it really come to life in my conversations with leaders, in my conversations with team members, and now inside, uh, you know, in my year and a half, can tell you that it comes up in you know so many conversations day to day, both in coaching people, but frankly, even in making hard decisions uh, and thinking yeah. about the business. And that's when I think you know you've gotten something right. Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't actually, uh, you know, the, the term operating system I'm familiar with, I haven't uh, heard it applied in that context. So I, I actually like that framing. That uh, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so I want to dig into, you know, this idea of personalization, because obviously in your business, you rely heavily on on personalization, both through your you know algorithm and technology, but also through the kind of personal style choices of stylists. And with a data science team of 120 and, uh, and a quant orientation, which I, I know you have, you, you must have be really kind of intrigued with the possibilities of weaving personalization into your people programs. And so I'm curious, how does that actually show up and how you manage the, the people side of the business? Uh, I love this question. It's actually something that we just spent quite a bit of time talking about among my leadership team. So I would say, in all honesty, we are in early days of this, um, but we find kind of tremendous possibility inspiration actually from the business itself, right? So if you think about Stitch Fix and how we um, ask people to share with us a little bit about themselves um, through their style profile, through um, telling us about the brands that they like or don't like, um, think, tell us about other aspects of their life, and then our ability to kind of personalize around that. There's so much that we could actually kind of draw from that into people practices. And probably the two biggest areas on our radar right now that we want to focus on, the first is I would say the swath of time from you know, being in the recruiting process uh, through joining us uh, and then th probably through your first 90 days. Um, now, there are things that you can do um, that are universal in that time that just make for a great experience. But there are also things that you can do that are deeply personalized that, um, A, I think really make for an exceptional experience for somebody, right? Just feeling really seen and heard and really set up for success. Um, and then also, um, you know, frankly, and there's actually research out there on this, right? Rapidly accelerating them towards productivity, right? Um, whether it's through knowledge or frankly, just feeling included and, um, and integrated and you know, really that everyone is, is there to help them succeed and that they know what they need to do. And so um, there's lots of things that we're thinking about there um, in terms of like, where can we capture that data at the right time? And how do we then bring it back to both humans and technology, again, sort of uh, drawing from our business model? Um, because if we do it just um, through sort of people, um, it's not easy to scale, right? And so we are over 6,000 employees. And so there's this piece of always thinking through that context as we keep growing. Um, but obviously, if it's just through technology as well, there's a human element of this that would be lost. And so um, lots to come, I think, in that front. Growth and development is another area, I would say, that we think there's a lot of potential here on. So uh, if you think about these broader trends in the in the world of work, you know, there are facts out there around how um, relative to a few decades ago, people have many more jobs in a lifetime. People have, frankly, many more careers in their lifetime, right? Um, and there's uh, there's things that are happening in terms of technology, in terms of the rise of freelance culture and so on, um, that I think really allow this expansion of opportunity when done in the right way. Um, that also means, that I think, for many people, a counter trend, um, which is um, being overwhelmed, 
right? Um, in the same yeah. way that um, the sort of tyranny of choice can overwhelm people for consumer products, I think actually the tyranny of choice in careers is actually pretty overwhelming to people. And so one of the things that I've sort of seen in my work over the last several years is people saying, look, I don't want to go back to the time where I had a career track that was prescribed to me, you know, uh, and that was the only thing I could do. And, you know, you just kind of put on your blue suit and your red tie and grab your suitcase and sign up for the next 30 years. Um, I don't think anyone wants to return to that. But they're also saying, look, this is actually challenging, right? There's so many things available to me, even within this company, much less, you know, over the broader course of my career. How do I navigate this? And I think it's a real competitive advantage to build an organization where leaders are equipped to handle those conversations and to really help talented people navigate those choices. When I think about in my own career uh, and a few team members that I've been lucky enough to work with, I think those have been some of the most powerful moments, right? Where we've had actually conversations that weren't as scripted, frankly, right? It wasn't sort of as straightforward as saying, yes, this is the career path. Here are the next two steps. Do these things and so on. It was actually you have a diversity of interests. You have a diversity of talents. You could actually do three different things. How do we think about that? How might you, what are the personal sort of, you know, sort of things that attach to that in terms of trade-offs for you or things of how this would fit into the broader life that you want to lead? Um, how are the different ways that we could shape your work over the next coming year that would give you that optionality? Um, those conversations, I think, are more thrilling and more fulfilling for people. They're also damn hard. Right yeah. for managers, they're not the same conversations that you had to have 30, 40 years ago, and so that I think is a secret sauce, and uh, and there are, I, I think some awesome glimmers of that already at Citrix, and it's somewhere that I want to lean into. Yeah, I think you raised a really good point there because I think careers nowadays are nonlinear, and you know we often talk about the the opportunities that creates for employees and prospects and people are trying to hire, but that does put on a lot of stress and pressure on managers. Well, I should say effective managers, right? Bad managers, yeah, it does exactly. it they don't, they don't think about the optionality. You know, effective managers want to nurture that. They want to develop that. And so um, that's not always a, a skill set that they have. Uh, so they, they also need the, the development guidance and training to help them kind of be that internal coach. Um, because especially now where talent is much more fluid, if you're not creating those kind of opportunities that you're, are valuing your employees and progressing them in areas where they want to be progressed, um, they're not going to stay they're, 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 They've got options that they're going to, they're going to take advantage of them. So um, a really important point to think about it, One thing I'm curious for you, you know, you're kind of in an interesting position with stitch fix where obviously you're a, you're a B2C brand. You've got lots of uh, customers who are also candidates um, at times. And so from a candidate experience standpoint, I imagine it puts a lot of, um, additional kind of stress and, uh, and, and requires a lot of more mindfulness on the candidate experience process so that you don't, you know, find yourself in a position where you're risk losing customers, um, based on, on any kind of glitches with the candidate experience. Do you, do you look at it differently kind of when you're in this environment? Do you, do you measure it differently? How do you, how do you ensure that you're, your candidate experience is, is designed in a way that, um, you know, retains customers and maybe in some cases even makes new customers. It's a great question, Lars. And um, I'm going to sort of say something that my if my team listens to this, they'll probably roll their eyes at because uh, one of the things I say often is, can you hold these two things in your hand that are actually deeply in conflict? Right? And so <laughs> right. Uh, essentially, I would say being a consumer company, uh, when you're in high growth and you are you know trying to go out there and get a lot of great talent to join you, um, is actually a double-edged sword. 
right? So the the wonderful thing about it is that people, uh, you know, have a better shot at knowing you, um, resonating with you, um, having a relationship with you because you're a consumer brand out in the world, right? And so hopefully they like what you do. Um, but if they do, then there's just a natural entry point for people to just, uh, I think, feel an attachment, right? And uh, so many of the amazing people that I talk to who are interested in joining Stitch Fix, they talk about, uh, like you, an experience that they or someone that they love has had with Stitch Fix that just made them um, be the, you know, a better version of their self because of the way that they were able to sort of enter the world. And so um, you, you, you kind of start with an advantage, right, in terms of that emotional connection. But on the other side, I would say... Um, to your point, you're sort of navigating two worlds at the same time, right? You're sort of saying, okay, I want to deliver an amazing candidate experience for you in the sort of purest uh, sort of essence of that in a recruiting sense. But you're also actually navigating the fact that people are experiencing you in the broader world as a consumer, as a person, right? And there are a number of other consumer brands, I think, that have you know both shown, I think, again, the advantages of that and the challenges of that when uh, you yeah. have some sort of stumbles. And so I think it's something, um, it's something that we're already, I think, quite aware of um, and something that I th we're actually leaning to even more now and just um, I think connecting those two worlds and so for example our um, PR team and my recruiting team are building um, you know even stronger connections now and just sort of understanding the I think fluidity of you know sort of a candidate and a consumer in the world that we live in and uh, and recognizing that there's both strength and challenge to that, actually. And so how do we sort of best support our hiring managers and our recruiters um, to navigate that? And to your point, um, you know, I would say you want every candidate to have a great experience, um, partly because you hope that they'll still sign up for Stitch Fix or remain a Stitch Fix client over time. But partly my big belief is, you know, even if someone's not right for you as a candidate, um, who knows who their cousin is, who their roommate is, who their best friend is, who yeah. actually is, right? And so... We actually talk as a recruiting team that are, you know, pretty damn, you know, hard to achieve, but it's our aspiration is that, you know, every single candidate that spends time with us leaves an advocate for Stitch Fix, regardless of what actually happens in terms of their hiring decision. Um, that is a very high bar, um, but it's a pretty good North Star for us. Yeah. And look, the, the reality is, you know, recruiting uh, by the numbers is a rejection business. Right. right? Exactly. You're, you're say no to a lot more people than you're going to say exactly. yes to. And so that experience that they have and how they're treated and, and how, how you make them feel goes a long way towards them, you know, being uh, an advocate on one side of the fence or the other. It's it's kind of interesting, Lars, because I think um, it's one of the things that sort of can always be helpful too when you sort of have experienced different talent models is it sort of breaks you of certain ways of thinking. So, you know, having grown up within McKinsey, uh, McKinsey is a talent model where, you know, what is it? 90% of people who are hired in a given point of time are gone within three or four years, right? Um, and right. it's not, it's, it's a kind of high churn model, but it's actually, everything's built around that. And so you actually, A, it's really healthy to talk about the fact that you probably will leave. <laughs> and talk with your manager about right. like, what do I aspire to do someday? Like, how will this experience help me do something else someday? Right. It's all of the normal sort of fear factor that I think in a, you know, sort of operating companies can, can come with that conversation at McKinsey doesn't really exist in the same way. I mean, you know, it does in some context, but generally it doesn't really exist in that way. And so it's funny because I sort of, sort of, you know, then came as an operating and to be clear, but you know, those fears and anxieties I understand and, you know, I have experienced myself. 
but I had sort of, you know, sort of said like, well, why wouldn't you sort of talk about the, the likely possibility to your point that uh, someone's going to not be in this role at this company at some point? That's actually, those are the statistics, right? And so um, if that's the case, what's the outcome that you're really striving for? And that I think can really unlock a very different way of working and a different way of going after the work. Yeah. Well, one question uh, I'm certainly keen to get your take on, you know, you've been at Stitch Fix for a little over a year and a half now. How has this impacted your own style and wardrobe? This is a, this is a heavy hitting uh, question. I'm sure (laughs) listeners, you know, they, they, they need to know. Uh, You know, it's a great question. I would say my big insight is actually one that we've seen in the business as well, which is fit is everything. And so um, what was so powerful for me was um, I, uh, you know, all of us have sort of quirks to us, right? And so I um, happen to have just like some different proportions to my arms and my torso and stuff that just make fitting into a lot of brands like not as easy. And uh, what I found on my third fix, I remember this really vividly, was putting aside whether it was like exactly what I needed in my closet or whether I love the print or not, everything fit like a glove. Which was just yeah. just astounding to me, right? And I and I sort of re- that honestly for me that was when the magic sort of like really clicked because you realize people do this all the time, right? They say that brand really gets me because of the fit. I'm gonna go buy. Yeah. I'm gonna keep going back to that store. I'm gonna buy five more versions of this blouse or these pants because like I just know they're gonna fit me really really well, right? And so all of a sudden, is you know the business model itself allows you to do that, but in a way that still allows you to experience and experiment with so many other sort of, you know, aspects of style and so many different brands. And, and so I think for me, um, there was a reminder of that. And then since then, I think, um, just sort of trusting that the fit will be great. Um, and then allowing the stylist to, uh, have a little bit of fun. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I like that, uh, and, uh, fit I certainly get. And I actually had that same experience with Stitch Fix actually, where it was, uh, you know, it wasn't as much the designs, it was the feedback on like what fit and what didn't. Cause I, I, you know, I think we broke, I also have an atypical frame. So it's like, uh, most off the shelf stuff didn't really fit me as well. And so that, uh, seeing how that changed over the course of a few, um, you know, boxes, I was like, okay, I, I, I get this. Um, Jevin, last, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I think there's been a lot for, uh, for, you know, myself and listeners to take in, you know, last question for you. I know, you know you've obviously worked in management consulting, you've worked in retail oriented organizations, you've worked in, you know, high growth startups. When you look at how, from your perspective, how the field of, you know, whether you want to call it HR or people ops has evolved and you think about kind of where we are today with, with best in class HR, like when you, when you think of the term 21st century HR, what comes to mind for you? Oh, such a great question. I think uh, I think a few things. So I would say um, the first is, and I think we're just starting to see the tip of it, is um, is technology, I think, really becoming embedded in sort of everyday work life. And it's not that it's not happening, but I would say the promise of what's really possible, I, we really just kind of tipped into it, right? And so things like Laszlo Box, Humu uh, with their nudges and so on, like I think is just the tip of the iceberg. And you know, you've probably heard from me that I draw a ton of inspiration, I think, from other innovations in business and other functions. And so when I think about things like, you know, always on sensors in industrial, um, you know, these things where you're getting tons of insight um, just through the everyday, um, I just think there's so much there for us to really unpack. Um, because again, right now, that one of the challenges, I think, in in many aspects of people data, so there's there's sort of outcomes, if you will, right, in the people data. And then there's things that are essentially require someone to fill out a survey, right? 
And right. I just have to believe there's actually more that we can do there. And I think um, technology advancement in other sort of fields as well is probably going to lend itself so that when we think about 21st century HR down the road, um, you know, hopefully it's more Star Trek Next Generation than Black Mirror. <laughs> but, um, you know, what I think about the possibilities around, um, actually, I'll give you another example of something that I think could be really interesting, right? So um, there's uh, software out there now that is helping call center leaders um, sort of map emotions in calls with customers, right? And with their agents, right? Um, now, again, this, this hopefully, you know, this is the force. It can be used for good oh, evil. Right. So we, let's make sure that we lean into the good, right? But you think about how tools like that could actually down the road help coach, right? Could help us intervene in uh, in the moment in ways of working where someone is being less inclusive un- unconsciously, right? Um, or decision bias is happening, right? The, the, the world of possibilities is really pretty expansive, right? And so when I think about 21st century HR, I think about um, the the continued collision of technology um, with kind of humanity and the ability of the function to really harness that in a way that's proactive uh, and for good. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think as we as we kind of talk about the potential of AI to to fundamentally change so much of how organizations work, I think a lot of people are watching the the HireVue lawsuit right now to see where that goes because that uh, right you know, that that kind of opens up another side of this and so whether it's in that situation, it was used for you know good or evil. I think the courts will decide, but I think that's going to be kind of a landmark case that may that will likely influence you know how this technology will um, you know will be steered. So it's uh, definitely something to watch. For sure, cool, well, Jeff. And I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your uh, your journey and your your experience. I definitely appreciate it. Thanks so much, Lars. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Twenty First Century HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this or read stories from the 21st Century HR Fast Company series, go to 21stCenturyHR.com. And if you want to make your podcast just a little more awesome, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform your ears desire. You'll find all the subscribe links on the website. And if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor and share it with your peers, your network, your boss, and your CEO. Help me get the podcast into the ears of anyone who wants to know what HR and recruiting looks like when done really well. They'll thank you for it, and so will I. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.